My name is Tim Phillips, one of the elders serving you here. If you didn't know, mask or not a friend to a beard. Um, our scripture this morning is going to be taken from Philippians. We'll be reading starting in verse 12 down to verse 26. And um, I'll let, give you a second to find that if you don't have that. And now as our tradition, if you are able, I'd ask you to stand in the honor of reading God's word. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me <clears throat> has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, <clears throat> whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and for the joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the end of the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you would turn to Philippians chapter 1, and before I jump in, I do want to share, I heard news of two births connected to our Redeemer family this weekend. Laura and Will Henson, who were members of Redeemer but have moved back, uh, gave birth to their daughter Nina. And uh, I also heard that Travis Tucker and his wife Catherine gave birth to their son Ford, uh, making David and Shirley grandparents. So we rejoice in that. Before we jump into the passage, though, I have a question, and I want you to jot down the answer or make a mental note. If you could change one thing right now or do one thing, anything, what would it be? Right now, you could wave your magic wand, whatever, sprinkle pixie dust, whatever, because it's not going to happen. What would it be? Do you have it in your head? All right, let's pray. Father, help us as we look at this passage, for we need to hear your voice. 
We long to be in Your presence, to have our mind renewed. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that You would remind us of Your unfailing joy, who for the joy set before You endured the cross, scorning its shame. Oh Holy Spirit, we ask that You would renew us, convict us, transform us through the Word of the Lord. And that You would fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. How do you respond to suffering and hardship? What's your common response? Is it anxiety? Discouragement? Resiliency? Courage? Attempts to control? Confidence? Defiance? What is it for you? Is it joy? Paul in this passage shows us how he is facing hardship and suffering with an unshakable joy. I, I find such joy times to be elusive. In God's grace, there's been seasons and circumstances of life that I've known and experienced it, but there's other places where that seems almost beyond my grasp, beyond the ability of God to work in my life. And I sometimes believe the lie that if I were just directing life, then I'd be able to be more joyful. I mean, don't you ever feel like that? I mean, if God did what I thought ought to be done, well, then things would be good. And yet, as I say those words, I realize how little wisdom I have and knowledge I have, let alone for my life, but other people's lives that I know and care for, let alone people I don't know, or the nation or the world. Like, I see how foolish that line of thinking is. So how do we find, how do we follow Paul's example of having unshakable joy in the midst of hardship and suffering. This idea of rejoicing in the Lord is not too difficult when things are going well. But it is when circumstances become difficult that our ability to rest in His joy becomes difficult. Paul's modeling this joy for us. If you don't Recall, let me remind you that the setting of this letter, Paul has started this church. He went and shared his life and the gospel with them. And then over a number of years, he continued to interact with them. But it's probably been about 10 years. And right now, he's in prison. And while he was in prison, they sent a man named Epaphroditus to bring him some gifts and to bring him news about the church of Philippi. But they also wanted news about Paul because they loved him. They cared about him. One of the reasons Paul's writing this letter is to give the Philippians an update on his life because you can imagine what they've heard. Assuming that Paul's in prison as he's writing this in Rome, then he has been arrested, beaten. He has gone over the ocean and been in a shipwreck and finally now in Rome in chains. So you can imagine why they would be worried about him. How's his health? How are his spirits? This is a discouraging thing for the church. I mean, he's the main evangelist and church planter. He's the one who's mentored other people like Timothy. He's he's the one who has been at the very center of the advancement of the gospel. What's going to happen to the church worldwide? What's going to happen to us if Paul can't come and be with us again? So they're concerned about Paul. They're concerned about the church. They're concerned with their relationship with him. And so part of Paul's response is to tell them how he's doing. And yet, even as Paul addresses their concern for him, he's directing them beyond himself. 
It's almost as if Paul's taking his chains and he's saying, don't look at the chains. I want you to look through the chains. I want you to look through those gaps. I want you to see what I see, see what I believe, see what I think is happening. See, because of Paul's unwavering trust in a good, wise, holy, sovereign God, he was able to bear up under hardship and suffering. When he said in verse 6 of chapter 1 that I know that God's going to bring to completion what he has started in you, that wasn't just true for Paul or for the Philippians, but for all of his church, that the grand plan of God's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration will not be stopped, even by Paul's arrest. And so Paul's trying to encourage them and to help them look beyond that. And so part of what he does, he says, look, and listen how he uses the words, I want you to know brothers. It's not a throwaway word. He's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know that my suffering has really advanced the gospel. Again, Paul's able to have this perspective that the hardships he's endured, the beatings, the shipwreck, the imprisonment, he can look and say, but here's how the gospel has gone forward. In particular, he says, I want you to know that the whole imperial guard has seen that my imprisonment is for Christ. They've been around lots of prisoners, and yet here they are around Paul who's continuing to speak about Jesus, to find joy in Jesus, to not be anxious or fearful, but to be at peace in Jesus. He says, so the gospel is gone. It's been able to be proclaimed to them, a place that I wouldn't have anticipated the gospel going God brought me here and God has brought the gospel there. And then he also says, but I want you to know the gospel advanced too because it's given some of you brothers and sisters in Christ encouragement to boldly speak the word without fear. This is important for us to hear. See, Paul is telling the church, I'm not the only one who's supposed to be speaking about Jesus. You don't need to be afraid. If I can boldly proclaim Jesus, even in chains, do you see how it gave them courage? You know what? I'm not in chains. I don't have the same threats. I can tell other people about Jesus. I don't need to be afraid. And even if that were to come my way, God would be with me. See, Paul's trying to encourage the church. He says the gospel's advanced because they're not just relying on me now. You've been encouraged by my imprisonment and my faith that you can go and proclaim Jesus. So in the midst of good times as well as hard times, do you have that courage, that joy, that confidence to proclaim Jesus, to talk to other people about Jesus at work, in your neighborhood, on the soccer field, on the baseball field, wherever you are, do you see that God has placed you there to advance the gospel? We don't have to wait for these special moments, for these special events or these times where they ask you a question you can look and say do i have opportunity to bear witness to jesus and so paul's able to say i i see it i see the gospel going forth over the last week i've gotten a couple of updates from some believers in china one's from the church we've been praying for wang yi's church early rain church wang yi was arrested a couple of years ago for preaching the gospel and the members of a church continue to be under persecution. And there was one sister in Christ who was brought in for questioning with her nursing child and her other child who was a couple years older. And she recounted how on the way in the police car to questioning, she and 
her little one sang, sang hymns. And then she was questioned for several hours in very harsh ways. And then she was out sitting with her kids on a couch and she was just singing hymns and had the opportunity to talk to two other prisoners about Jesus. And it happened that one person who walked by was also a follower of Jesus and was able to be encouraged by her witness. Another church in a town in China, while they were in a service like this, police came in. They disrupted the service. The service was still able to continue, but they were making noise. They were trying to disrupt it, and yet they continued. And at the end of the service, they took the pastor in for five hours of questioning based on an illegal meeting during a pandemic. And he said it was a joy to be able to bear witness to Jesus. See, Paul's boldness emboldened the church of Philippi. Wang Yi's boldness and other believers have emboldened others in China to be willing to find joy in their persecution. See, our joy doesn't need to be based on our circumstances. And Paul's giving us a model of what that looks like in hardship. And we have some examples, thankfully for us today, of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul's hardship and suffering wasn't merely that he was imprisoned. One of his sufferings was a divided church. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, rivalry, but from some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. They know I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You can imagine as Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel, and he and others in some way we don't know very much about it. It's it's a long time removed, so it's hard to say what this wrong motivation or why they were doing it. But it appears they were believers because Paul says later, he says, I can rejoice even though their motives were bad that Christ was proclaimed. So it's not a false gospel that's being preached here. I don't think it's the false teachers he's going to talk about later in the book. It's believers who wanted Paul to suffer in some way for whatever reason. Now, I, I want you to jump back with me to Paul's prayer. Because part of what Paul's doing, not only is he giving the Philippians an update on how he's doing, he's heard what's going on in the church of Philippi. And he has some concerns. He has concerns about a divided church. And so he's going to put himself out as an example of how to live in a divided church. He's actually going to hold out Epaphroditus and Timothy as examples as well. But listen to how he prays for the church. For God is my witness. This is verse 8 of chapter 1. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. First off, he's reminding them how, how he loves them in Jesus. How he has a similar love, sacrificial love, longing for their good. And he says, and it's my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Because Paul's beginning to hint, I think that's a problem. It's not just a, a general, I want everybody to have love, I want everybody to grow in knowledge. Paul is speaking to some of the issues and struggles in Philippi, and he's saying, I am praying that your love would abound. Well, why is that? Because in the midst of what he's experienced, a divided church where some are against him, Paul knows that we often don't act in love towards one another. You know, the passage that's often used in 
in weddings, which is it's fine, but was written in the context of a church that was actually divided, it defines what love looks like. And so while they're preaching Jesus, there's some animosity or, or struggle with Paul, and I can hear Paul almost saying, look, I'm praying for you to abound in love, and this is what love looks like. It is patient and it's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul is praying that the church would abound in such love in the midst of division. He says, I am praying this. And he is modeling how that should look like and what it looks like in the midst of this imprisonment. In 1984, John Stott wrote a book or commentary on this. And this is what he said. He said, divisions in our church remain one of the features of our day. It's not new. Paul knew division. The church throughout the ages has known division. Right now, the church knows division and all that's going on in our nation and the world. And the question is, how as we believers are we supposed to live in the midst of this tension? How do we function as the body of Christ? One pastor said this, it's very easy to develop a streak of bitterness in our spirits when we see the errors of other professing Christians. The result is an unattractive harshness which does not commend Christ. We learn from Paul that false motives and even errors in others need not produce an unchristlike temperament. So long as the one concern of our lives is to honor Christ, we will be safeguarded. So easy when we see others' errors, others' words, others' failures, to become critical and judgmental and to speak in ways that are not like Christ's temperament. Yeah, there's faith, there's hope, but above all is love. And if I don't have love, I'm just a clinging symbol. And so what are our words spoken, written, felt, what do they translate, communicate as the nature of Christ? The other pastor said the one thing that's going to unite churches worldwide is uh, of diverse people is going to be the gospel. I heard someone make this comment, in America the church has been growing and it's been not a, in a season where there's no persecution, so people join churches based on their differences. It's a marketplace of churches, so I want to find a church that emphasizes this or has this ministry or has this view of polity or this. And we aren't emphasizing where we as churches worldwide, nationwide, citywide are united on the basics and the fundamentals of the faith. We've become so fractured and isolated, we now know each other more for what we're against than what we're for. What unites us, Paul says, what he is able to find joy in, look at verse 18, even though people preach in a way that would hurt me, I can rejoice because Christ is exalted. For Paul, his unshakable joy, his primary principle was that Jesus be exalted. For that, I rejoice. Now, Paul has an uncertain future. I don't know about you, but for me, one of the times where it's hard to have an unshakable joy is an uncertainty. If you give me a path, if I know what the outcome will be, even if it's terrible, I can walk through that path. But for me, uncertainty is one of the bigger struggles. Paul doesn't know what's going to happen to him. 
He doesn't know if he's going to die in prison or if he'll be set free. And yet for Paul, he is able to transcend where my anxiety is because he says it doesn't actually matter whether I'm set free or I die. Look what he says, verse 18b. I will rejoice. So he's saying I rejoice because Christ is exalted. That's one of the reasons that I can have unshakable joy even in the midst of personal hardship and suffering and division of the church. But the other reason I can rejoice is that I know because of your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, I'm going to be delivered. See, Paul's laying out for us principles that guide his life. He says, I'm going to rejoice in Christ, I'm going to depend on Christ, and I am going to honor Christ. And Paul says it this way, whether I live or whether I die, I'm going to rejoice in Christ, depend on Christ, and honor Christ. See, for him, there was something that was ultimate. And what was ultimate for Paul that fed this confidence, this dependence, this rejoicing, was what captured his heart and affection and his love. That was Jesus above all else. See, Paul makes this statement to live as Christ and to die as gain. How many of you can echo that? How many are really ready to say to die is gain? See, Paul's here struggling with a choice. I have a choice right now. I can keep living in change, keep living and be delivered and go to the Philippians, or I can be with Jesus. Now, this teaches us a couple of things, right? It means immediately when you die as a believer, you are in the presence of Christ. There's no sleep. There's no waiting. It's not the full resurrection. It's not the new heavens and the new earth where you have your new body yet, but you are immediately in the presence of Christ. For Paul, life was about Jesus. Life and death. And death meant more of Jesus, more of him, more communion in him. So Paul says, if I can have more Jesus, then why wouldn't I want to die? See, some of the reasons we don't have unshakable joy is because Jesus isn't everything. There are places in our life that are more beautiful and have our affections more than Jesus do. And many of those are good places and great gifts of God. That's what makes it so hard. It's easy to look at some of the things that are awful imitations and say, no, I know, and yet we can still become enslaved to those and people are enslaved to them. But I think something that's almost more dangerous are the the beautiful and good things. Now see, Paul says, look, I'm going to rejoice and I know that your prayers and the help of the Spirit are going to deliver me. Paul shares his weakness. He shared it in other books. I need you to pray for me. And I need you specifically to pray that the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will supply my need. Paul elsewhere asked the church to pray for him. Friends, we have an obligation to pray for one another. You have an obligation to pray for me. I know many of you do, and for that, I am so profoundly thankful because I need it. I need the Lord's strength. I need the Lord's wisdom. I need resilience. I need courage. I need compassion. I need unshakable joy. But do you? 
Do you pray, not merely for one another, not merely for our church, but for our missionaries, for persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul's saying we should be praying for the church. And I know you're praying for me. We have this partnership, this gospel ministry, and that's part of his update, right? I, I want you to keep praying for me. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for your prayers. I still need them. We need to be dependent and be praying for one another. Then he goes on to say this. When he says, it's going to turn out for my deliverance, that word actually is the word for salvation. And it's ambiguous. What I mean by that is, we don't know if Paul's saying, I'm going to be delivered from prison, or I'm going to be delivered from my chains and die and go to heaven. I think Paul's intentionally leaving it ambiguous. Because for him, both are true. He will be delivered, whether it's by chains or by death. And whichever happens, it means the same thing for him. Christ. To live for Christ. That's why he then goes on to say, it's my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body by life or by death. Friends, is that true for you? Can you say that right now I want to honor life, Christ, in all that I do? Every second, every thought, every conversation, I want Christ to be honored. Well, let me ask you this. To live is what? If you were to fill in the blank, for me, to live is Soccer, baseball, work, to find true love, to have children, to be recognized. How would you fill that out? Let me go back. Remember when I asked you if you could change one thing? Do one thing? What was it? Fill in the blank. To live is that one thing you wanted to change, the one thing you wanted to do. You might say, well, that, that's not fair. You didn't give a setting. You didn't give a context. You know, what I wanted was good. You know, I wanted the pandemic to end. Or I wanted world peace. Or you, you know, whatever it might be. Or you were just like, I just want to you know, have Chick-fil-A for lunch, but it's Sunday, so I can't. But, you know. So I don't know what that one thing might be. But here's what I want you to understand, and I know is true of me, where my heart and mind drift, that often reveals a lot. And so that one thing that you wanted probably reveals a lot about where you are. It's not all of who you are. <laughs> right? Part of why we gather on Sundays is to realign ourselves and remember, oh yes, I am made by God, for God, to live for Him. Because we often, it's like a, a plane when it's flying, it gets blown off course and you have to keep making adjustments. And if you don't make the adjustments, you end up way off course. And so we have to keep coming back and remember, yes, to live is Christ. It's not for me. I have to die to myself. We have to have daily deaths where we're dying to our own desires, our own dreams, our own kingdoms, and keep enthroning Christ and saying, no, your kingdom, your throne, your way, by your love, by your means. And Paul says, it's better if I go. 
The only way death is better than life is if Christ is everything. And I think that grows over time. I've shared this before, but I remember praying with uh, these three men who were in their last years of life, and they would often talk about longing to be with Jesus. And I would say, as a, a early guy in his 20s, like, I just don't get that. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Life isn't, I don't, I don't want to die. There's so much here I want to do. And they're like, yeah, we understand. That comes with time. But not merely with time, friends, because you can live a week, a month, 80 years, and that may never come. See, Paul's saying Christ must be your life. You must trust in Him. You must rest in Him. You must claim Him as your Lord and Savior. And then as that becomes true, more and more He shapes your desires and your hunger to live for Him. See, the world had lost its grip on Paul. He didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care about his physical comfort. What he cared about was Jesus being exalted. And that cost him. Cost him in so many ways. But listen to what he says, verse 24. But if I'm going to remain, it's for you. If I'm going to remain, it means to live for Christ and to live for you. He says, if I'm coming, if I'm let out of jail, it's for your progress and your joy in the faith. That word progress is the same word where it was used in verse 12 to advance the gospel. See, for Paul, everything was about advancing the gospel. His suffering, his hardship, his life, his death. He says, look, if I come to you, it'll cause you to glory in Jesus. Man, that's a strong statement. I just want you to ask that. Do people glory in Jesus because you come to them to help them progress in their faith? See, this isn't just for Paul. There's all sorts of one another verses. The question is this. Are you not only living for Christ, because if you're living for Christ, dependent on Christ, rejoicing in Christ, honoring Christ in all things, then part of it means to live for others, to help them progress in their faith. We need to abandon the temptation for consumer Christianity. As you're engaged in worship, community group, Bible study, prayer groups, friendships, you are there not as a consumer, but to give, to be able to share, to be able to impart, to help, to grow. You are God's means to disciple and grow people to follow Jesus. It's not merely on those whose it's their vocation or elders or deacons or the spiritual elite. You're to live for others. You must glory in Christ more than your own glory. Because death is then gain. So let me ask you again, to live is what? Until we can continue to repent of living for other things, until we can keep, while we continue to elevate and keep Christ enthroned, death won't be gained. And if to live isn't Christ, then we won't have an unshakable joy. If to live is not Christ, we will not be able to be dependent and be able to do these things to the degree that to live as Christ, we will experience these things more and more. But again, Paul's not proclaiming perfectionism. Now, he's going to tell us later, look, I've got to forget what's behind. I've got to press on. I'm still running this race because it's not over. 
So I hope you're not discouraged this morning if you say, you know, to live isn't Christ. How does that happen? Well, for Paul, it kept coming back to reminding himself of who Jesus is and what he's done. Because that then captured his affections. The glory and the beauty of majesty of Jesus made him fall so in love that he could live for no one else. All these other good loves, as well as the, the false loves, need to be set in their proper place. Even as Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's the one thing now, now that we've sat under his word, if you could do anything, change anything, what would it be? I hope it would be to exalt Jesus. And we can do it as a church and as individuals by glorifying him, honoring him, and living for others, that they might grow and progress in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a good and gracious God and that the bedrock of rejoicing in our life isn't the goodness of our day or our circumstances, but in the goodness of you and your son and your plan of redemption. Lord, I know my own fickle heart. I know my own affections that can be drawn to other things. So Lord, we ask, stir us. May our only comfort in life and death truly be that we belong to Jesus Christ. And might we live faithfully for him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.